we are commanded to put on or take up the panoply, the complete armor, the full armor. But notice that this complete package of body armor is called the armor of God. The armor of God. What does that mean? Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. If you're in a spiritual battle, how are you meant to fight? Hello there, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part 15 of his series titled Learning to Use God's Armor. Throughout our series in Ephesians 6, we're looking at what the Apostle Paul describes as a fierce spiritual battle. We're not fighting for land and treasure. Instead, we're fighting for our souls. And to spiritually survive in this war, you must be equipped, you must be prepared, and you must use the resources God has provided. Today, Tom begins to examine the wonderful and helpful resources available to you. Let's join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. When I was growing up, and still sometimes, we sing a hymn called On Jordan's Stormy Banks. Some of you may remember that hymn. That hymn teaches or sort of compares the promised land to heaven and crossing over the Jordan River as death. So the Jordan is death and then you enter into the promised land. So it pictures all those battles that the children of Israel fought gaining the promised land as heaven, I guess. And that's okay. We can sing that song and understand what it means. We're going to pass through death and enter into what God has promised us. But that's not really the comparison the Bible makes. When you look at that Old Testament story and the series of events that unfold there, the New Testament compares the exodus from Egypt and the Passover with our salvation. Christ, Paul says to the Corinthians, is our Passover lamb. We ate of Christ, as it were. We partook of Him at our salvation. The promised land, in New Testament terminology, really reflects the battle of sanctification. That is, the battle to become increasingly more like Jesus Christ in this life, in this world, to overcome the sin that's a part of our lives. So the conquest of the promised land, then, is a picture, if you will, of what our spiritual battles are like. With that in mind, turn back for a moment to Joshua chapter 1. Just to remind you of how that unfolded, Joshua chapter 1, you remember Moses dies, and then the Lord speaks to Joshua, and he says, Moses is dead. So verse 2 of Joshua 1, I want you to cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. And every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. Now that's very interesting. God says, I promised you this land. I'm going to give you this land. It's yours. Oh, but by the way, you can only have it if, first of all, you walk through the land. Notice verse 3, every place on which the sole of your foot treads. I promise you the whole land, but you're only getting it when your foot passes over a particular portion of that land. Secondly, by the way, there are battles to be fought. There are enemies 
that must be defeated. Look over in Joshua chapter 6, the story of Jericho, and this is how it begins. Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out, no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors, and therefore there's something you have to do. There's a battle you have to fight. You have to follow my instructions. There are still enemies, even though I've given you the land, even though I've won the battle. Until the Israelites obeyed God, until they did what he commanded, not one battle was won, not one enemy was defeated, even though he had given them already the land. And when they were victorious, it wasn't their victory, it was God's victory. That's exactly like sanctification. That's exactly like the battle to be more and more like Jesus Christ. We advance only because God has promised us. Promises like Romans chapter 6, verse 14, for sin shall not be a master over you. That's a wonderful promise. But guess what? That doesn't happen automatically. Those are, that's a promise about a great victory, but we still have to fight. There is still a powerful enemy, and we will only defeat that enemy as we use the resources God has provided. And when we use those resources, and when we gain the victory, it will not be our victory, it'll be God's victory. He alone gets the credit. You see the parallel between the battles for the promised land and the battle to take back the corners of our souls? Paul describes that spiritual battle in Ephesians chapter 6. We are not fighting for land. Instead, we are fighting for our souls. We're fighting against attacks on our souls to keep the land that Christ has conquered. And to spiritually survive in this war, we must be equipped. We must be prepared. We must use the resources God has provided. And in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul explains what those resources are. Let me read it for you again. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The paragraph really continues down through verse 20. And the theme of this paragraph is the only way for us to win the war for our souls is to stand firm in the strength of Christ and in the armor of God. Paul really details here the, the way we are to prepare. The various, <coughs> excuse me, 
the various parts of our preparation. In verses 10 through 13, he gives us a general explanation of our duty. And he says, if you're going to prepare, you've got to understand your orders. We must understand our orders. And in verses 10 through 13, we've looked at those orders together. In verse 10, he says what our orders are. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. How do we do that? Verse 11, put on the full armor of God. Why? Verse 11 goes on to say, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, against his attacks on the Word of God, against his intimidation with fear and persecution, and against his seductions with personal temptation. We, we have to be armed against his attack. And last time, we looked in verse 12 at the nature of the warfare in which we're engaged. We saw that it was universal. That is, every single Christian is involved in this battle. It is personal. He uses the word wrestle, hand-to-hand combat. It is spiritual. It's not against people. It's not against flesh and blood. It is supernatural. It's against Satan's forces. And, and my girls gave me a hard time for this word, which they couldn't spell for their notes. Hierarchical. It is organized. It's structured. There's this army that Satan has organized in a certain way. That's the warfare in which we're engaged. And then in verse 13, Paul summarizes our orders. He says, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist, that is, the schemes of the devil, in the evil day. And having made all the preparations you're supposed to make, then you'll be able to stand firm. Now, don't miss Paul's big point in verses 10 to 13 as he goes through our orders. He's telling us this. The enemy you are fighting in hand-to-hand combat every day of your spiritual life, the enemy you're fighting in your thoughts and in your mind is too powerful for you. It's not just a matter of expending the right amount of human effort. If we think we can fight this war on our own and win, we are sadly mistaken. But here's the good news. Christ Christ is able to make us stand, and He makes us stand by giving us His own strength. How? By our putting on the full armor of God. And today, we come to Paul's detailed explanation of that armor. Verses 14 to 17, the details about the armor itself. We can call this second part of our preparation, put on God's armor. Our preparation involves understanding our orders, and secondly, it involves putting on God's armor. Now, in these four verses, verses 14 to 17, Paul gets to the heart of what he wants us to know about this defense that we have against Satan's tactics. Before we come to the individual pieces, I want us to make some general observations. I'm afraid that most Christians have really no idea what this passage is talking about. You know, they can picture a Roman soldier outfitted in all of the armor. You know, that plays out pretty well on flannel graph or PowerPoint. And they know that somehow they're supposed to be like that soldier, but they really don't have a clue as to how. What I want to do this morning is sort of sweep away the clutter, sweep away a number of the misconceptions that we have about this armor that Paul describes here. 
Lord willing, next time we have together, we'll begin to look at the individual pieces. But today, I want to make some overarching general observations about this armor, this armor that is supposed to defend us against error and against intimidation and against temptation. The first general observation I think we need to make about this armor is that there is an intentional order in this list that Paul gives us. There's an intentional order. Notice in verses 14 to 15, Paul lists pieces of armor that a soldier on duty would wear all the time. A belt or a sash, and we'll talk about what that was when we get there. A breastplate and the right shoes for your feet. If a soldier's not sleeping, and if he's on duty, those pieces were always on. But when you get to verses 16 and 17, you come to the last pieces of armor that a soldier would have put on just before the battle. He would have added to the pieces that he wore all the time his helmet. He would have put that on his head as he prepared for the actual battle. And then he would have picked up his shield and his sword. So although all this armor is essential for the battle, and Paul makes that very clear, at the same time, it's important to understand that the first three pieces of this armor are the foundational pieces that no soldier should ever be without. You wear them all the time, not just at the moment of battle. So, first of all, there's an intentional order. There's another general observation we can make about the armor, and that is that the metaphor Paul uses here of armor is flexible. It's flexible. What do I mean by that? I mean that Paul doesn't always paint this armor exactly the same way. When he uses this metaphor of Christian armor in other places in his writings, he often slightly changes it. Let me show you what I mean. Look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. There we're told the breastplate is what? The breastplate is righteousness. Okay, keep that in mind. Now look down at verse 17. The helmet is salvation. Okay, keep those two filed away and turn back with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul will use the same image, but he'll change the qualities. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8. He's been talking about the day of the Lord, that the day of the Lord is coming, the day God pours out His wrath and fury against the earth. There are those who are the sons of darkness who aren't prepared. They're the sons of light. That's us who are prepared. And therefore, he says, verse 8, since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, did you notice Paul changed? In Ephesians 6, the breastplate is righteousness. Here, it's faith and love. In Ephesians 6, the helmet is salvation. Here, he changes it slightly. It is the hope of salvation. Now, what does this mean for interpreting Ephesians 6? It means that when you look at Ephesians 6, the main point is not where that piece of armor is fastened. It's not which quality is attached to which piece of armor, because here he changes that. Instead, the 
the main thrust of the passage is on the qualities. Some commentators wax eloquent about all of the organs that a particular piece of the armor protects. For example, the English Puritan William Gurnall wrote a book on these few verses here in Ephesians 6. One book, or excuse me, one passage, three volumes. 261 chapters, almost 1,500 pages on these verses. See, it's not as bad as you thought it was here. Now, how do you get there from these verses? Well, you get far too elaborate in trying to press the metaphor into all of its details. I'm not being critical, by the way, of Gurnall's work. It's a, it's a wonderful work. I'm just saying you can get carried away with pressing the details too far. And obviously, it's clear from passages like 1 Thessalonians 5.8 that that's not what Paul wants us to do. We can make some general observations about what body parts the various pieces of armor protect, and that's okay. We will do that. But that's not the main point. The main point is that these are all spiritual qualities, spiritual realities that are essential to our spiritual protection. That's his point. And together, they make up our armor that protects us from Satan's schemes. So don't get carried away with assigning what piece to what quality and all the details and fleshing that out too much. Instead, look at the big picture. Here are spiritual realities that guard our souls. There's a third general observation we need to make about the armor. Paul's illustration of armor comes from two distinct sources. Where did did Paul come up with this idea? Well, it comes from two sources, and this is very important to understand to interpret it rightly. The first of these sources is clearly the many Roman soldiers that Paul would have seen throughout his life. He grew up in the Roman Empire in Tarsus, and then when he was a teenager, he was sent to Jerusalem, where he trained under Gamaliel. In Jerusalem and in Caesarea, there on the coast of the Mediterranean, there was always a large contingent of Roman soldiers because of the potential for uprising, the potential of rebellion. And so his entire life, he would have seen Roman soldiers on the various Roman roads as he traversed the Roman Empire. He would have seen legions of Roman soldiers. But Paul's exposure to Roman soldiers was much more intimate than that. In fact, as he writes this very letter... He may have been looking at a Roman soldier or even chained at the wrist to one. Ephesians is one of four letters in the New Testament that theologians called the prison epistles. The other three are Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. They were all written, those four books, during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. If you want to know what was going on during that first imprisonment, read the last two verses of the book of Acts. Here's what it says. Paul stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. This letter to Ephesus was written near the end of that imprisonment, near the end of those two years, probably around 62 AD, from his own rented quarters in Rome under house arrest. Now, to come up with this illustration then, 
Paul had to look no farther than across the room, or in some cases, someone awaiting trial could actually be continually chained to a Roman soldier. We don't know if that was true at this stage of Paul's imprisonment or not, but he was certainly under house arrest, so there would have been a Roman guard nearby. And so there was a constant reminder of armor. There are two ancient secular sources that describe the Roman soldier's armor, and as we work our way through the armor, we'll rely on both of those. But there's another source. Not only the Roman soldiers around Paul, there is another source of this metaphor, and I would suggest to you that it was even more influential in this passage than the Roman soldiers around Paul. That source is the Old Testament. Now look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 14 to 17. Note that many of the verses in that section are capitalized in our English translations. Certainly in the NAS that's true and in many other English translations. Why is that? Because verses in the New Testament that are either direct quotations from the Old Testament or are clear paraphrases of an Old Testament passage are always capitalized in our English translations. So in other words, where you see all caps in verses 14 to 17, those phrases come from the Old Testament. And if you trace those phrases back to the Old Testament, you will find that all of them come from the prophet Isaiah. So understand this, this metaphor is not an accident. As we will see, it is based on Paul's deep understanding of the Old Testament Scripture. It grew out of his understanding of Isaiah, and that becomes very important to how we interpret this armor. Number four, a fourth observation, general observation we can make about the armor, is that it is the armor of God. Now, I know I've touched on this point before, but as we begin to examine this armor in detail, it's absolutely essential that you understand this. Notice twice in verse 11 and again down in verse 13, this is called the full armor of God. Start with that expression, full armor. That's a little misleading in the English because it implies that there's a Greek word translated full and there's an English word, or excuse me, there's a Greek word translated armor. But in reality, the English words full armor translate only one Greek word. It's the word from which we get a very rare English word, panoply. You know, we sing a hymn sometimes, an old hymn about putting on the panoply of God. You ever wonder what that was? It's this word. It simply refers to the complete armor of a heavily armed soldier. It's the package of armor that a soldier wears. The whole ensemble, the whole package. We are commanded to put on or take up the panoply, the complete armor, the full armor. But notice that this complete package of body armor is called the armor of God. The armor of God. What does that mean? Now, this is not an idle curiosity. Understanding this 
what the armor of God means is absolutely crucial to Paul's point. And therefore, understanding what Paul means by God's armor is crucial to withstanding Satan's tactics in our lives. What does it mean? The armor of God. Well, there are two implications in that expression, that genitive. One is that God is the source of the armor. It's the armor of God in the sense that it originates with God and it is given to us as a gift. It is the armor that God supplies to believers to protect them. Whatever this armor is, it comes to us from God. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 15 of his series, Learning to Use God's Armor. Tom will have part 16 for you next time, and we hope you'll join us then. In a world filled with great uncertainty, God's Word and the promises it contains offer wonderful encouragement to believers in Jesus Christ. We pray that the ministry of the Word Unleashed is playing a prominent role to that effect, and we'd love to hear how that works in your life and personal walk with the Lord. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.